0: Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Nicole Bernard is the second vice president of the Pasadena chapter of the NAACP. I first came across Nicole when she co-moderated a virtual debate between then-mayor and former show guest Terry Tornick and current mayor Victor Gordo in early October of last year. As you will hear, she is passionate about community involvement, and this is reflected in the role she has with the storied Civil Rights Organization. Before talking a little bit more about Nicole, it is worth taking some time to talk about the NAACP and its history in Pasadena. Black history in Pasadena might date back to perhaps Joseph Holmes, who drove a herd of cattle from Nebraska in 1883. As the city grew, so did its minority populations, prejudice, and segregation. In the early 1900s, the black community became more politically organized, and this empowerment came to the forefront when the swimming pool at Brookside Park, known as the Brookside Plunge, refused admission to non whites in 1914. Originally spearheaded by the Negro Taxpayers and Voters Association, a campaign and eventually a case was brought against the city of Pasadena in 1939. This denial of access likely contributed to the founding of the Pasadena chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People on September 8, 1919 by John R. Wright. The purpose of the organization in Pasadena was to respond to the needs of minorities and serve as the voice of all those denied basic dignities. The Pasadena chapter was the 16th charter issued by the National NAACP, and the chapter is still going strong more than 101 years later. Now back to Nicole. A lifelong Pasadena resident, Nicole is a child of the 90s, born to a Costa Rican mother and Jamaican father. She attended Pasadena Unified School District schools and graduated from Pasadena High. She was a former recipient of ABC7's Cool Kid Award and interned for Pasadena City Councilmember Tyrone Hampton. During her time with Councilmember Hampton's office, she helped organize community meetings to ensure that the concerns of residents were heard. She recently earned her Bachelor's of Science in Organizational Leadership, and is currently working on a master's degree, all the while being a proud mother of three boys. Nicole was generous to take the time out of her busy schedule to talk, and this was especially challenging due to the demands of our six combined children and my dog who decided he wanted to be part of our conversation. Throughout, Nicole was extremely understanding, great to talk with, and I appreciated the opportunity to get to know her better. Finally, Nicole and I spoke just before Christmas. While in reality it was only a couple weeks ago, it feels like so much more, due to the recent events that have exposed how fragile our democratic system is. I wanted to note this as it might have been a great topic to cover with her, and something worth exploring in the future. But without further delay, my conversation with Pasadena NAACP Second Vice President Nicole Bernard. So, Nicole, thank you very much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I was first introduced to you when you co-moderated the homegrown millennial leaders debate for Mayor back in October, which you co-sponsored with the NAACP, Hood Liberation, and Pasadena Young Leaders. As a way to kind of start our conversation, can you tell me a little bit about how that debate kind of came to be and why it was so important for you and the other organizations to host it?
1: Sure. So for me, I was born and raised in Pasadena and I somewhat grew up in like Pasadena politics. And that for me was an idea that I had, because if you look at the past elections, you don't hear from the millennials. It's it, excuse my language. It's the typical middle age, older American, um, no offense, but tends to be like the white community. And we don't really hear hear from our black and brown young people that grew up in this community. So for me, being um this time, a uh, so change in the guard. It was important for uh, for me to really bring together um, young people who are really doing a lot of the grassroots work, as far as like trying to change the narrative when it comes to politics, um, police brutality, and things of that nature. And. For me, so the organizations that joined was Pasadena NAACP, which I ran. I um, I'm from. I currently serve as second vice president as of January, and then the other two um, organizations is Hood Liberation, which is a collective of Black and Brown leaders. They're more so new to community organizing, but they do a lot of work around police brutality and community organizing, and then. Um, Pasadena Young Leaders is a group of Pasadena Young Leaders. We all came from different organizations, um, Black and Brown youth, both male and female, that grew up in Pasadena, still doing work in Pasadena, um, and we did a lot of work around um, the police oversight. So that's where that came in. So all of all together, I think it was maybe about six to eight of us that came together, thought it was a good idea, saw it through, put together questions that you normally wouldn't hear. Um, And that's why it was important for us to do that, to really just bring a voice to our millennials, our black and brown people, the Northwest people that grew up here, born and raised here, um, probably can't buy a house here compared to some of our peers, and just really give a voice to that community.
0: So you mentioned that you're the the second VP of the NAACP here in Pasadena. How did you get involved with NAACP. And it sounds like you're, you're born and raised in Pasadena. So obviously you have a lot of history in the city. So kind of how did you connect with that organization and what, what does that really say about you and your values?
1: So for me, I first learned about the Pasadena chapter when I was growing up. Uh, I probably, I think I might've been in high school. I was coming through day one, which is another um, young audience, another nonprofit here in Pasadena. And one of the current board members, he was, um, He currently, I think he might've been like president at that time, but he would always talk to me about it and what they do aligned with a lot of my personal values. So fast forward, I think I've been with them, maybe like three, three or four years now. Um, we started, got reintroduced to them about about three or four years ago, um, through Dale Yarbrough. And I believe we had like a young adult committee or trying to formulate that young adult committee. And I kind of stood around because I felt like, okay, um, at that time we really lacked lack of representation. I know there were some things that happened there that had caused a lot of young people to leave, but I just felt like it was time for me to be here and just really see it forth and see what the organization can do for the community or help them do more for the community.
0: That's great. Thank you very much. At the beginning of this year, we had no idea what 2020 was going to be like in terms of how we worked, how we lived, And then there's obviously the social justice implications of this year. How have things changed in terms of how you've gone about organizing in a time where you can't necessarily be physically together, but you're connected by social media? Um, I don't think
1: much has changed, to be honest. I just felt like it was more of an opportunity to use the tools that we have. Um, a lot of people know social media is a very good platform, especially to reach the, reach the younger generation. And it was just really about us tapping into that tool and really utilizing it for what it's worth. And for us, um, that's been a lot how we get all of our information out, at least to the younger generation, share important information, um, share information on how to go to council and just really keep people abreast of what's going on.
0: You know, you said you were born and raised in Pasadena. Who were your early influences? Who really inspired you to get involved in community activism?
1: For me, it would have to be... One of my early influencers would be Jaylene, Rob- Jaylene Mosley. She worked at the Flintridge Center. Um, and people don't really look at her as an activist, but as quiet as it's kept, I feel like she brought a lot of change to Pasadena as far as like trying to bring people together, make sure millennials are taken care of. And then she really had to think about young girls and making sure young girls are in a position of leadership. Um, and just really, I know for me, I worked there, and she just really made sure that I network with people. I knew who the key decision makers are. and she really just really enforced the importance of networking and knowing who's in your neighborhood. So for me, that's one. And the other person would be Christy Zamani um, over at day one. I grew up, so Day One is another art organization that I grew up through, as I mentioned earlier. And for me, she really pushed me to get out of my comfort zone. At times I hated her for that, but now looking back, I really appreciate her um, doing that.
0: So one of the the big themes for this year following the COVID outbreak was the killing of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. How has that influenced your work on a daily basis? And kind of how has that influenced how the NAACP views its work in the community?
1: Um, I think, well, I feel like unfortunately his death just really reinforced a lot of the work that we did. I don't feel like he died in vain, but for the African-American community, his death and what happened to him isn't something new. Um, a lot of black, And I would even go as far as saying brown people are killed innocently by the police um, time and time again. And as far as how NAACP, his death came into play, well, his death really influenced the work that we did for us, it really, it just really forced us for lack of a better word to say to, we wanted the police oversight for a long time. And it just really forced us to reach out to our community partners and make it happen by all means necessary
0: you mentioned the police reforms that were passed in October by the city council. What do you think of those reforms and have do you think that they've gone far enough or is it kind of just too early to tell?
1: Um, I think it's too early to tell, but I do think it's a nice beginning, especially since this is something that we had to pick up again. And then I know there's people before me years ago who tried to do it, but I do think it's nice to see like, okay, it's finally like, um, we're making ground with it. I still think, I still think it's early and I still feel like it's a lot, we still have a lot of work to do, but it, we're we're getting somewhere now. You
0: know, following the Floyd killing, we had uh, a shooting here in Pasadena mm-hmm. with Anthony McLean passing away. Um, in the c- broader context of kind of what you are fighting for and what you're trying to bring to the, the local and national attention, how do you see the next couple of years playing out in terms of honoring George Floyd's memory, And as well as Anthony McLean's memory in terms of the policies and kind of the approach that we take as a city.
1: Um, I think it's important for people who were really involved in both um, movements here, both the local one and the national one, especially those who were directly affected and continue to be directly affected by police brutality to really just hold all of our elected officials accountable by whatever that means. And if they don't measure up to the things that we feel as it will, you as an individual or you as an organization feel that they should do, then that's our moment to vote them out, find somebody else to um, run in their place. But yeah, that's for me how I see it is there's a lot of work to get done. It's not gonna be easy. Um, It's gonna take time and just for us to really just to move forward, continue to put pressure on it and just remember like to have patience with it as well.
0: With the election, we saw a new mayor come in Mayor Gordo, we saw a new member of the city council, and so when we look at the diversity on the council, do you think that that really shows some progress in our city?
1: Yes and no. I feel like it shows progress in terms of minorities, women being able to run for council and be able to be elected to council. There's still only one woman on council, and she's representing as so as uh, Margaret when Austin did, and then before her was Margaret and- Jackie um, both retired, but I just feel like it just reinforces the fight that we need to have in order to bring diversity to um, elected officials or whatever, as far as top goes. But I feel like even though we have a diverse council, look at who makes up the city and how did they get there and who do they owe favors to or who is their loyalty to. Um, although they're black and brown, does that really mean that they have the best interest for black and brown people? I understand that they are elected to serve the city as a whole, but there's certain issues that affect black and brown people, white Caucasian people, millennials, women, more than they affect others, and just really seeing how those issues
0: fall on their um, Mm -hmm. list of importance. You raise a very important point, which is there's only one woman on the city council. This election was interesting in LA County, The LA County Board of Supervisors for the first time has five women Mm -hmm. on the Board of Supervisors. So we're seeing some progress on the county level but in the city there's still a lot more to do and we do a lot more to recruit and and show girls that they can be in these elected positions.
1: Yeah and also addressing biases too that people may hold subconsciously that affect women to being elected to those positions as well.
0: We we talked about the summer and all the the social justice efforts that were made. Part of that was an effort that has been branded defund the police. And one of the things uh-huh. that the NAACP has supported has been a reduction in police funding and a redirection of those funds to more mental health, to youth programs. And and unfortunately, what we saw in the election was some voters thought that defund the police became a rallying cry for law and justice. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think defund the police means in the context of the post-election world that we live in?
1: As far as post-election goes, defund the police means that no, well, the way I look at it is that no additional funding goes to the police and that the additional funding, um, that they still have their same budget, but whatever else was supposed to be poured into that budget is it goes towards social services, towards the community. Um, Now, I feel like the term defund the police is a little bit tricky because if you don't really understand the context of it, when you hear defund the police, you might think, okay, well, we're going to slash their budget by 50%, whereas that may not be true.
0: Unfortunately, the defund the police kind of movement has been characterized by one thing, as opposed to really understanding what it's really about. Right. And the same with the, the Black Lives Matter. Um, it evolved from uh, support of, of Black lives to then it became evolved into a rallying cry for all lives matter. And then, and then the conflict ensued over the summer. Yes. Pasadena has a very rich history with Black Americans. And if you go back to the founding of the NAACP back in, in 1919, so we're, you're celebrating your 101st anniversary. And it really kind of shows you, and I believe from what I understand, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were the the 16th chartered organization overall. I believe that.
1: That sounds right. Yeah.
0: Which is pretty remarkable that there was a recognition in the city back then that they needed a, a larger voice and a larger presence. Do you think that the history of Pasadena is told enough in terms of the perspective of Black Americans?
1: I don't feel like it's told in the, uh, enough in the perspective of Black Americans. I know for me, my Black history that I know from Pasadena, it came from my grandmother, my grandparents who came here from another country and experienced that racism. Um, I also feel like that has to do with it not properly been documented, documented um, so that others can research it and really learn from it. But as far as it being talked about, I do feel like it needs to happen. I know that that conversation is going to be very uncomfortable for some, but that it's what happened and we can't change it. But I definitely think that conversations like that, um, being uncomfortable, um, it's part of moving forward and addressing some of the racial inequalities that our city has because of those policies. Um, I don't know if you know, I believe that Blacks couldn't buy a house, buy housing in certain parts of Pasadena. Well, because of that policy, you see a lot of, you see well, a little bit of what, how we have today. And I feel like that contributes to the income inequality gap that we have between like Blacks, Browns, our, and our white counterparts.
0: When um when I bought my first house, which I'm very fortunate to have one of the covenants in the house is built in 24 was that it couldn't be sold to anyone that was Hispanic. Wow. And it was a source of pride because the people that we were buying it from, the wife was Hispanic and she thought mm-hmm. it was, it was wonderful that she was able to buy the house and then to sell the house as a Hispanic person. Like you said, there is a history in the city and that history has contributed to maybe the, the housing inequality that's currently at, at, at odds with us. One of the issues that the nobody piece hit is targeted is housing. Yes. You talk a little bit about what you see as the, the issue and what steps you've done or, or what kind of actions you've taken.
1: Um, So as an organization, I know that worth, they've worked on housing. I don't necessarily serve on that committee, but I hear a lot of what they do. Um, I know they've tried to work on rent control to try to keep people in the city um and prevent their landlords from raising the rent to prices that they can't afford to get them out. I've also seen them try to work. I don't know if you heard of Heritage Housing, but their program here that builds housing in Pasadena um for low income or like I they call low income, I call it regular working class income, um, because that's what it is if you look at the price that the how I mean the salary, but they're um, they, so our committee's been working with them to try to get people to apply, make sure that they qualify or at least have everything in a row, so they have the um, best possible opportunity. And then also, I believe they're working with the Joe Shook, who's from making community, community and housing happen to really just try to address the housing inequality. I know that she was working on trying to get the excess church land to build housing for low-income um, families so they can try to stay in the community as much as possible.
0: When you think about your three sons, you shared with me that you have three sons. I have three young children. When you think of them, what do you think about the future that they're gonna be living in? Are you optimistic about their future because of the things that you're doing today?
1: Yes and no. Um, I feel like my contributions to the community does make it better, but I feel like it's not enough. And I feel like we still have, there's still long strides to be made in order for my sons when they get adults, to have a decent quality of life, be able to have access to resources so they can buy a house, have a decent job and not have to um, struggle as those became before them.
0: One of the things that kind of came about during the summer was this idea of equal, not necessarily equal outcome, but equal opportunity that we show mm-hmm. justice by providing people with with the with equal opportunities to to achieve what they want to achieve do you think that that you know frankly is is enough to because we are we are facing you know systemic racism s- systemic inequality uh, economic inequality social inequality um, do you think that it's it, it's enough frankly to have equal opportunities or do we need to do more than that
1: so my personal opinion i don't feel like it's enough just because um, if you look at history, I believe it's black people or black and I want to say even brown people We're about 400 or 450 years behind when it comes to wealth, just because of the stuff that we've had to do. And then to add like Jim Crow, the, the continuous systemic racism, police brutality, and just all of that. And then people still holding those racist beliefs in their subconscious. I feel like just the um, I feel like there's a lot more that we need to do that can be done in order for us to have equal opportunity.
0: How can people in Pasadena support the mission of the NAACP here?
1: So I feel like first people should just take an honest look at how they're living their life. And if the way that they're living, are they, does it not beneficial for all, but like, so i'm gonna take it back so in so i attended pasadena city college and i learned a thing called white privilege and i knew what it was i just didn't know that there's a name for that and for those who don't know basically to make a long story short it's when like our white counterparts are able to to um benefit from their whiteness and a lot of um people don't know what it is so i would say first by looking at how you're benefiting from um the way you live your life. Would you have those same opportunities if you were a black woman or if you were LGBTQ or a Hispanic man and just really um, look at that? I feel like first people need to look in and it really address, I guess, those biases or how they live their life. And I feel like then we can move forward and look out.
0: So do you think it starts with having those uncomfortable conversations?
1: Yes. very uncomfortable conversations, yes.
0: How do we start those conversations, do you think?
1: I would say um, by being open, open to it, knowing that you're going to be uncomfortable, being okay with being uncomfortable, and just being okay with knowing that the information, just being uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. A lot of people, a lot of Black and brown people, that's how they live their lives. They have no choice but to be uncomfortable. But I would also say too is to not get offensive not be offended by it a lot of people when we i feel like just in my experience when i've had like, these uncomfortable conversations with my white, white counterparts their initial response is oh well i didn't do that and of course you didn't do that but you have benefited from the privilege of your ancestors that's just acknowledging word. that
0: that's a great answer and so I'm going to wrap up on this because I know we both have to go back to our kids. <laughs> yes. um, I just want to thank you very much for your time and being so generous with it. You have been a very important voice in the community. And I'm grateful for both the NAACP's presence in Pasadena and also your voice lending these issues an incredible amount of uh, credibility and authenticity. So thank you very much. And I hope you continue to serve the community in, in the way that you are.
1: Thank you for your opportunity for allowing me to come on your podcast.
0: Again, my special thanks to Nicole for coming on the show. If you're interested in learning more about the Pasadena NAACP, please visit their website at naacppasadena.org or its pages on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and several other platforms. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast, and until next time, please remember that we are stronger together, and as always, see you around town.